What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Maybe you've got a question about the Catholic faith, you're, you're asking your friends, you're asking people at work, and, and you can't get a, a proper answer. What does the Catholic Church actually teach you about this, this, and this? We can help you with that. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. The address for that ctc at ewtn.com. And uh, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. How are you, sir? Tom, I'm great. Thanks. How about you? Doing very well myself. And I've got a fascinating email that we received from Mark. And this is after doing all these all these shows, all these years, I've never heard this one. Mark says, I would become a Catholic if the church took the Bible more seriously. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I really appreciate that a lot. Um, so, you know, the, the Catholic position on sacred scripture, I'm going to just quote to you from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Catechism says, paragraph 103, the church has always venerated the scriptures as she venerates the Lord's body. She never ceases to present to the faithful the bread of life taken from the one table of God's word and Christ's body. In sacred scripture, the church constantly finds her nourishment and her strength, for she welcomes it not as a human word, but as what it really is, the word of God. Now, if you attend a Catholic mass, you'll, you'll note there's a significant part of the liturgy when all the faithful stand and we acclaim uh, the Lord and praise him for the great gift of his word and and uh, the priest processes with the gospels um, to the ambo and places them kisses them and I mean it shows every sign of, of external visible sign of reverence to the actual physical book mm-hmm. uh, we stand for the reading of the gospel and proclaim praise to you Lord Jesus Christ um, and the the, 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 the central act of Catholic worship, which is the holy sacrifice of the Mass, is, of course, replete with the reading and meditation and proclamation of God's Word. In fact, the, the sacrificial nature of the Eucharist, when we offer the body and blood of Christ in reparation for the sins of the world, much on the order of Old Testament sacrifices, is our covenant response to the proclamation of God's Word. So the priest intones the words of the Gospel, and the rest of the Mass is, as it were, our, our response back to God, uh, be it done according to thy word. I mean, that's the offering of the Eucharist is in- intimately, intrinsically connected uh, as our response to the proclaimed word of God. And we actually look at the content of Mass. There's more scripture read and proclaimed and meditated upon within Catholic worship than in most forms of Protestant worship of, with which I am familiar. So we, we are very much about the reading and proclamation of the Bible. And, uh, of course, in throughout Christian history, there have been those souls that were illiterate. I'm thinking some, so like somebody like uh, Anthony of the Desert, great Anthony the Great, who more or less committed the Bible to memory simply from uh, the, the, the great quantities of Scripture that were presented to him orally, proclaimed mm. to him in Mass, which, of course, was his daily practice, was to hear the Word of God proclaimed and commit it into his heart. Uh, uh, St. Dominic, famous... Uh, 
founder of the Dominican Order, carried with him the Gospel of Matthew everywhere in his back pocket, as it were. And uh, that was to him not only Word of God, but rule of life, determined to make his life utterly conformable to the Word of Christ found in St. Matthew's Gospel. We could find countless other instances from Catholic history. St. Francis of Assisi, who's often known for his uh, love of poverty, what's not reflected on as much was his love of Scripture. And Francis's devotion to the Bible was so great that even even scraps of paper that had biblical verses written on them, he used to gather them up like like pieces of a broken host and place them in a position of mm. honor within the church, place them up on the wow. altar and literally venerate them. So serious was he about a radical obedience to the word of the gospel that when he heard Christ say, sell everything you have, give to the poor, come and follow me, he purposed to put that in practice as literally as possible and yeah. instituted a revolution in Western consciousness with the advent of the Franciscan movement, which totally transformed Christian civilization, this radical attempt to live uh, the gospel as uh, as literally as possible. Catholic theology has always drawn its heart and its breadth from the pages of sacred scripture. You, you can't pick up any Catholic theologian and not uh, be inundated by reflection on the Word of God. Um, so I'm I'm perplexed. I'm perplexed by the statement that the, <laughs> sure. that the Catholic Church doesn't take Scripture seriously, unless you mean in the devotional life of individual Catholics, who, of course, vary widely from one another mm-hmm. in the extent to which they actually engage God's Word on a daily basis. And then if you were to say, well, you know, there's something how illegitimate to be a lay Catholic and not be daily involved in, you know, the reading and meditating of Christ's Word, I would say, Really? Like, on on what basis do you make that claim? Because uh, clearly, you can be, you can spend a lot of time reading and not come to holiness. Yes. And there are souls who have come to great holiness, though they be illiterate. And so let's define our terms a little bit. What do you mean when you say the Church doesn't take Scripture seriously? Mark, thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's one now from Oscar. Why do the Catholic priests say, quote, we dare to say prior to the Our Father prayer in Mass? Yes, because prior to Christ, uh, it was no one's practice to refer to God with a capital G as Father. Uh, they might, some might, might refer to him in the third person as, you know, sort of the Father of all. You know, the All-Father, if you take from, say, Norse mythology. But not my daddy, hmm. you see. That, that innovation was Christ's own, to refer to God as Abba, to speak in a second-person way person-to-person, face-to-face, in a degree of intimacy with God, you know, to treat God as my very own Father who would care for me and have the kind of solicitude for me personally that one's very own Father would. That, that was something audacious to introduce to the human race. And of course, we wouldn't stand in that kind of filial relationship to God but for our incorporation into Christ, who is the eternal Son of God. So it's within His divine Sonship that we are able to approach God the Father as my Father. We dare to say. We dare to say. Love that. Oscar, thanks so much uh, for your email. We try to tackle a few emails on each of our programs. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, or if you're watching us on TV today, here is that address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. In a moment, we're going to be talking with George in St. Louis, Aubrey in Detroit. couple lines open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Do stay with us.
It's called a communion here on EWTN. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning with George in St. Louis, listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hey there, George. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi, everybody. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm helping out as an RCIA leader in my parish mm-hmm. uh, this year, and uh, one of the ladies who is attending uh, is a Calvinist Presbyterian, and she she's looking for resources, uh, and what she can find in her Amazon cart is either uh, anti-Catholic or um, uh, Protestant-leaning in terms of the history of the Reformation. And so she's looking for a book that kind of tells that from a Catholic perspective, um, perhaps pro-Catholic or, you know, at worst, neutral, about a history of the uh, Reformation. And I know, Dr. Anders, you've talked about it going back even to the 12th century, that it started there within the Catholic Church, but I think she's probably looking for more of the 16th century. Yep, I can help you. I can absolutely help you. So I'm going to give you several titles written from different ideological points of view, none of which are anti-Catholic. Okay, so if you want to go back a generation, um, uh, 1960, a book by uh, Father Philip Hughes, it's a Catholic writer, A Popular History of the Reformation by Philip Hughes. And that's going to be a very pro-Catholic, you know, it'll have an ideological bent to it, but very much like from within the framework of the Catholic Church. Okay. Someone else who's uh, very polemical that way, and it's a Catholic writer who is going to take a dim view of the Reformation, uh, would be uh, Hilaire Belloc, How the Reformation Happened. Um, again, so those are older works that are themselves polemical and pro-Catholic. Um, so a book that uh, is also Catholic, uh, but much more ecumenical, would be by Joseph Lortz, this is 1968, um, The Reformation in Germany by Joseph Lortz. And Lortz was a Catholic historian um, who took a benign view of the Reformation, and his thesis, not accepted by everybody, was, uh, in a nutshell, if only Luther had known Thomas Aquinas well, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have done the Reformation. Ah. So it's sympathetic to some of Luther's concerns, uh, but thinks that Luther you know, made the wrong move. Um, so um, uh, a book that is not by a Catholic, um, but is uh, uh, and pretty ecumenical, but scholarly, so its audience is not popular, but it's, uh, it's accessible. And this is going to go more into the prehistory as well, and I highly recommend it. It's by Stephen Osmond, um, Harvard University, and the title of the book is The Age of, Refor- the Age of Reform, 1250 to 1550. So it's going to give you the the late medieval background to up in you know including the early Reformation through mm-hmm. through the Calvinist Reformation. Um, something a bit more contemporary uh, by a Notre Dame professor, uh, Brad S. Gregory's book, The Unintended Reformation: How a Religious Revolution Secularized Society. Um, scholarly, uh, up to date in terms of the research, uh, but uh, you know friendly to a Catholic point of view. The Unintended Reformation. Um, and then um, another book uh, by a Jew. So this guy really does not have a dog in the fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. But it's a magnificent study of, in particular, the Calvinist Reformation. Uh, the, the author is Philip Benedict. And the title of the book is Christ's Churches Purely Reformed, A Social History of Calvinism. So any one of those books is going to give you a look at the Reformation that is not anti-Catholic. And again, each of those is written from a different ideological point of view, mm-hmm. none of which is Catholic bashing. George, we hope that's helpful for you and for your friend as well. And that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 
888-3986. And a, uh, a PS for you here, George, if you missed any of those uh, books that David was talking about, you can check out the podcast by going to EWTN.com slash radio. Once you're there, click on the words Podcast Central. We'll have that posted for you probably in the next couple of hours. Thanks so much for your call. Here now is Levi in Tulsa listening on the great Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Levi, what's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, hi there. Thank you for taking my call today. Um, this is a question that I have. I am a Protestant, um, but is very much in this, uh, drawn to the Catholic Church in a lot of different uh, re- a lot of different ways and reasons. I think some of the bigger hang-ups that I have are the necessity of having to like pray to Mary or to the saints, and not necessarily because of who they are, but um, I guess I just grew up under the tradition where we just have one mediator, Christ Jesus, we can go to Him. And I think as I've listened to Catholic Radio, the other question that comes up then is then, well, we can go to the saints because they're just, like, on the other side and they can pray for us in the same way that we would ask, like, my Aunt Jane to pray for me. And then I guess my question then became, well, then why do we need, if Christ is our mediator, then why do we need Aunt Jane to pray for me, other than just, like, someone that's carrying my burdens with me? But so I'm just, I think there's a short circuit in my in my Protestant thinking that's yeah. maybe hanging me yeah, I just wondered if you that's help. a great question. I love all these. So let me let me dialogue with you just a little bit. So, so you don't have to give me a profound theological answer. Like, give me a human answer. Give me a felt, meaningful answer of why you ask Aunt Jane to pray for you. Like, I, I to me, I know why I ask Aunt Jane to pray for me, or you know, Uncle John, or whoever it is. But why do you ask Aunt Jane to pray for you? I think I ask somebody that I can see and that they can respond to. They can check in. Like, there's a. Um, uh, there's someone that's sharing that with me. I think that's Bingo. The, the, the big yeah, absolutely. So you 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 ask your friends to pray for you because in my experience, and tell me if you think I'm wrong, but I mean like just existentially, just psychologically, I ask my friends to pray for me because I, I like the knowledge that someone who is close to me like holds me in their heart, that they care about me and my concerns. And praying for one another is a way of it's not just that I think that their prayers might be efficacious, that God will hear them, but it's also a way of solidifying my fellowship, my bond of, of love and union with them, and, uh, and knowing that they, have that, that they have me in their heart, that we care for each other, right? Um, I think it's absolutely right. And, and this is critical to what it means to be a Christian, right? That Christianity is not just about a personal relationship that I have with Jesus that affects no one else. It's very much a relationship with God that transforms my relationship to other human beings and brings me into a fellowship, into a society called the Church, in which we collectively seek to live out discipleship to Jesus in a way that absolutely impinges on a relationship to one another. I mean, if you've, I know you've read the Scriptures. Pauline ethics seems to me to reduce really to two heads. One is don't mess around with people you're not married to, and the other one is take care of the Christian in need. Like, that's, in, that's essential to Christian identity, that we are caring for one another as the body of Christ. And salvation means being transformed into that kind of person that I can live in that kind of community. St. Augustine once said the reason God gave us a church was so that we could have people to do good to, right? And have good done to us in turn. That's mm-hmm. just what it means to be a Christian. And so the, the other reason I might ask Aunt Jane to pray for me, uh, at least, you know, back when I was a kid growing up and so forth, and I, I wasn't a Catholic, but I thought about these things, was that the, the Aunt Jane or, or, or Grandmama, you know, Josephine or whoever, just has a reputation of being what you might call a prayer warrior. Mm, and you just yeah. have this intuition that when, when, you know, when Aunt Josephine prays, things happen. And maybe I'm not as confident that stuff happens when I pray, right? And so I want to I wanna get a piece of that. 
I think both of those things continue to be the, the motive behind the intercession of the saints, why it's good for us to have a devotional relationship to the saints. So at the level of Christian fellowship, when I became Catholic, one of the things that attracted me to Catholicism was the idea that in the second I entered the Catholic Church, I suddenly entered into conversation with, into relationship with the greatest heroes of Christian history. And that St. Augustine, St. Francis, St. Thomas, St. Dominic, St. Catherine, that these people were no longer just names on a page to me. They were now my friends. And that I could, that I could enter into a dialogic relationship with them where I felt like I could have that kind of uh, interchange that we talked about with Aunt Jane, that, that they could hold me in their heart, that I could hold them in my heart, right? And knowing that they were exemplars of Christian virtue, that relationship could also, not only would it be effective at the level of, say, you know, psychologically comforting to know they cared about me, but it would be edifying because I'm in dialogue with people whose way of life inspires me to, to transcend myself, right? Um, and then the other aspect we mentioned about was the the idea that somebody's prayers might be more efficacious than mine. That's clearly a biblical teaching. I mean, that's that's woven through the Bible from start to finish. You know, God says to Job's companions, hey, don't pray, I'm not going to listen to you, but ask Job to pray, I'll listen to him. He prays for you, I'll listen to what he has to say. And again, that also in, in my life, like subjectively, at my level of my lived experience, underscores to me that their holiness is something that matters, that I should emulate that. And as much as Christ is the unique source of all of our salvation, and their prayers are only effective because they're connected to Jesus, you know, Jesus chooses to distribute his grace to me through instruments, through human beings. And, and as much as Christ is the model of human life, absolutely, like I'm not called to be a messianic king preaching the imminent end of the world in first century Palestine on my way to Roman crucifixion. Not that that can become a metaphor that I might be able to apply in other uh -huh. contexts, but I I do not literally live Christ's life after him. I, I live him I live the spirit of Christ's self sacrifice, hopefully. But I do not literally call twelve disciples, get in a boat, you know, walk on water. <laughs> I don't do those things. Okay. Okay. And the saints incarnate Christ over and over and over again in highly particular circumstances that I can relate to. So I can relate somewhat to, say, Augustine as a university professor, you know, or St. Thomas as a university professor, mm -hmm. which is something that I used to do back in the day, you know, or, or you know, public communicators and some on the radio. I, I can relate to St. Joseph, or for that matter, I can relate to um, um, uh, Louis Martin, St. Therese's father, oh, yeah. as a Catholic dad. Sure, you know? sure. Um, uh, you know, my, my, there's a bunch of attorneys in my family, and so Thomas More as an attorney. I mean, I can relate to the saints at that level, and I can see they, they weren't the incarnate Son of God, and yet they came to holiness through the grace of Christ. Having a relationship with them, keeping them before my mind, helps me think that holiness is achievable. And that's one of the reasons that John Paul II canonized so many people. He wanted to underscore the, the reality that holiness is, is not an unattainable aspiration for people in daily life. That whatever your walk of life, you know, from the president of the U.S. down to the sanitation worker, um, that there's some saintly model with whom we can have a relationship that can show us how to come to holiness in that state of life. Levi, we hope that's helpful for you. Thank you so much for your phone call from Oklahoma today. It's called a communion here on EWTN. A couple lines are open for you at 833 288-EWTN. That's 
288-3986. If you're watching us on TV, you may want to send us an email, ctc at EWTN.com. Let's go to Leslie now in Cincinnati, listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio, AM 740. Leslie, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi, uh, thank you. Um, I've got a relative who um, is uh, non-denominational, and uh, they were criticizing Catholics. They, they actually got married Catholic, but they said that was the last time they darkened the door of a Catholic church. Um <clears throat> But they said that uh, that Catholics are repetitive in their prayers, and also that uh, that we uh, that we do enchantments. And and uh, I asked them for clarification. We haven't gotten that far in the conversation, but I assume that that has. I kind of assume that that has something to do with you know praying to the saints and praying to people who lived and passed from this this earth or something like that and i just wondered if uh if you can give me some some counterpoints yeah thanks i really appreciate the question so first of all the most of the non-denominational churches that i'm aware of in the united states especially the ones that are large and growing have such a formulaic character right there is a kind of franchise mentality that here is the pattern that you instantiate and church growth will happen. And it does fairly reliably, actually. You know, so you, you, the formula would look something like this. Um, you know, you go out and, and, and rent an office space or you build something that looks kind of like an airplane hangar with a lot of seating in it. You know, you spend a lot of money on lights and sound um, and, uh, and stage presence. You, you, you employ talented church musicians that typically play electric guitars, bass guitars, drums, and, you know, some sort of Korg keyboard, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, happy, smiling, well-dressed people with microphones stand on, on stage, and you sing praise songs um, that are about 90% of which come from the same two or three Protestant uh, worship song publishers. And so the same... This, the same sort of repertoire of music, all contemporary, published by the same, you know, for-profit publishers, gets repeated in each of these non-denominational churches, you know, until the next wave of popular contemporary music gets published. Uh, just the same sort of find, so you find it on Catholic, uh, Catholic Christian radio stations and so forth. That, that, that you do that, you, and you have really high production values, really good quality musicians. And, and, uh, and then, you know, someplace about at the two-thirds point in the, in the <clears> music— you sort of tone down the music, you, you, and you move back to a kind of one-five-one-five one repetition, you know, in the in the uh, uh, in the tonality, and and then you know the worship leader sort of drops his voice and invites the Holy Spirit to come in after you've sort of lulled people hypnotically into a certain suggestible state, and then you come to the sermon, and then the the homily is a sermon. Uh, has a pretty predictable character. First of all, you know, the pastor comes out usually wearing a cardigan, you know, or something fairly casual. But but you know, you know, he's spent at least a you know, two hundred dollars on his wardrobe, and you know, he 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 looks good, but but you know, business casual. Uh, he might prop one leg up and sort of sit on a on a on a high stool, uh, speak in a very kind of casual manner, and then give a a, a lesson that's highly interpretive based on a really narrow scripture passage. Um, that's meant to be, you know, deeply relatable to his state of, to your state of life in probably upper middle class middle America, you know, a lot of Lexuses and BMWs in the parking lot. 
and um, and the theology is going to be cookie, cookie cutter the same. And some sort of invitation to follow Christ probably comes at the end that's predicated on the same conversionistic understanding of Christian salvation. So that's kind of my caricature of uh, non-denominational churches, at least the vast majority of them, that are experiencing this church growth. In other words, r- repetitive? Yes, all day long. It was so repetitive. You, I mean, I just described the formula. Mm-hmm. And that's it over and over and over again, you know, of thousands of churches in North America. Um, so the charge of repetition I find somewhat disingenuous and hypocritical. I'll come back to this after the break. Sit tight, uh, Leslie. We'll continue this on the other side. Uh, we'll also get back to the phones and talk with you, hopefully, at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're watching us on TV, shoot us an email, ctc at ewtn.com. Back in a moment with lots more Call to Communion. Hey, glad you're with us for a call to communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Before the break, we were talking with Leslie in Cincinnati. And uh, Leslie's relatives said that the Catholic Church repeats a lot of things, very repetition, and performs enchantments. So uh, Leslie's looking for a little direction there. Yeah, so the challenge came from his non-denominational Christian relative, and I, I laid it on a bit thick before the break, but it's I— It's pretty funny, I, actually. But I, but I caricatured, and I think characterized, the formula that non-denominational churches have come to use in North America and have more or less collected about 70% of the church-going public attends to one of these Protestant megachurches, and they are so formulaic that we could, you could almost call them a franchise. I mean, they're, they're, they're so repeatable, right? And the music they use, the kind of messages they deliver, even the architecture, it's all very repetitive. So mm. I thought, well, the charge of repetition is a little bit disingenuous coming from, from these non-denominational types, seeing that there's so much repetition in their own, in their own formulas. Um, and uh, and the, likewise, the charge of enchantment. I mean, to my way of looking at it, an enchantment is a magical belief that if I, you know, repeat a certain kind of word or phrase or formula that I can reliably impart some sort of uh, supernatural effect to some person or object. And at least when I was a Protestant and and cruising around non-denominational churches, I, I, and especially within Pentecostalism, but even, even in normal evangelicalism, I encountered a lot of what I would consider magical thinking or, or enchantment-type formula. Um, so take, for example, the very common evangelical belief that, that if you repeat a certain word or phrase, especially the sinner's prayer, that you're guaranteed a place in heaven. And that, like, the whole idea of magic is that you can sort of repeat some magical formula and, and ipso facto be guaranteed a kind of supernatural outcome. Uh, I saw a lot of that in the non-denominational world. Again, like to repeat, here, here's the sinner's prayer. Go pray the sinner's prayer, which, of course, is nowhere in the Bible. Yeah. I was saying that's an invention of modern evangelicalism. Maybe repeat this phrase from the Four Spiritual Laws by Bill Bright, Campus Crusade for Christ, that sort of thing. And, uh, and you'll go to heaven when you die. Well, it, you know, boom, you say the words, get to heaven. I mean, I, I found a lot of that. So, I, again, I find it kind of disingenuous to lodge this charge of enchantment and repetition against Catholicism. And they're different uh, repetitions, obviously. They're different formulas. But I found a lot of that kind of thing in the Protestant world. They don't see it in their own case because they somehow think they're an exception to that rule. But I think it exists. Uh, then, again, the charge that repetition is somehow a negative um, interesting, given that the Bible is full of repetition, and 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 this is normative for Christian life. I mean, what is it? Thought Psalm one thirty six. Go read Psalm one thirty six. One of the most repetitive prayers you've ever heard in your life. You know, 
uh, it's this litany of natural phenomena exhorted to bless the Lord, you know, mountains and streams and rivers and water spouts and dolphins and aardvarks and kangaroos and <laughs> bacterium and paramecium all praise the Lord. You know, it's just on and on and on, praise the Lord, praise yeah. the Lord, all day long. It's so repetitious. Um, Jesus Christ, well, highly repetitious. When he, when he was asked by the disciples, how should we pray? He gave them a liturgical formula. He said, pray like this, say these words, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So the one place in Scripture where Jesus was given opportunity, you know, to say, well, how should we pray? And he, he could have said, oh, well, you know what? God really values is spontaneous, uh, you know, uh, from the heart, uh, uh, improvised prayer. That That's what Jesus, that's what God really wants. Mm-hmm. He didn't do that. What he said was, here, pray this prayer. Pray this formula, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, that's what the Lord himself gave us to do, okay? So, so repetition is woven into the fabric of Christian life from sacred scripture and from the teaching of Jesus. Uh, so is it bad to repeat oneself? No, absolutely not. So what, what does the Catholic Church do by way of repetition and enchantment? Well, let's deal with the enchantment charge first. If enchantment, if magic, is the idea that I can repeat a word or phrase or gesture and reliably cause a spiritual effect in a soul, all right, then I would deny the charge. Uh, the closest thing we would have to fit that description would be the intrinsically efficacious sacraments of the Catholic Church, which we do believe work ex opere operata, which is to say by the mere uh, performance of the ritual, one is guaranteed the presence of grace. Okay, But the presence of grace on offer is very different from grace effectively received into the soul. Mm. So merely because you have performed a valid sacrament in Catholic theology— that does not guarantee that that grace lodges in the soul, right? Yeah. For it to lodge there, there has to be the proper disposition on the part of the recipient. And for some sacraments, like like uh, baptism, for example, that proper disposition is faith and repentance. But for others, like the Eucharist, the proper disposition is not only faith and repentance, but also charity, which means the life of the virtues. And without that proper disposition, Without that proper disposition—I'm stumbling over my words—without that proper disposition, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says the Catholic who approaches the sacrament does so superstitiously. And so it, it, it explicitly disavows a magical view of the sacraments and their mm. efficacy. If you think the sacraments work in you, in you, in your life, just in virtue of repeating the formula, i.e. as an enchantment— then the Catechism says you are guilty of the sin of superstition. Ooh. Right? The way the sacraments work in us is that w- you see what is symbolized by the rite, you see what is offered in grace, and you make a decision to appropriate that into your life and to change your life accordingly. Without that, there is no efficacy. There may be validity on the part of the sacrament, but there's no efficacy in your own life. Right? That is the opposite of magic. See, the Christian disposition is what Our Lady said, what Our Lord said, be it done to me according to thy word, not my will but thine be done. Mm, right? yeah. The magical disposition is, God, let my will be done, not thy will be done. I'm going to say this formula, you do what I tell you to do. Mm. And the Christian disposition is the opposite of that. Catholic disposition is the opposite of that. So that's that's what I have to say about this charge of repetition and, and, uh, and magic and Catholicism. Leslie, thanks so much uh, for your call today from Cincinnati. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go now to Maria, first-time caller in Texas, listening today on the EWTN app, a free download for you. Hey, Marie, what's on your mind today? 
Hi, hello. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I had a question concerning my the way my brother believed in Christianity. Um, he, we were all raised Catholic, but now as an adult, he believes in the rapture, and he also believes that uh, the reason that Jesus had to uh, use Paul, um, uh, Paul's conversion, was because Jesus did not fulfill the mission, because the Jews did not convert, and so he had to use Paul to help with that. And so I asked him, well, what about the Gospels? And he said that the Gospels did not matter. And I said, well, we still have to follow the Ten Commandments. And he said the Ten Commandments and anything in the Old Testament was also invalid. So all that mattered now for Christianity was that we needed to live the Paul program and just read Paul's letters. And I'm not quite sure where he got that from. Yeah. But I, yeah, thanks. I, I, I understand that position. That is a that is a species of dispensationalism. Don't worry about that term. It's just a branch of of Protestant theology, uh-huh. and, and this is a radical form of dispensationalism that 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 sunders the Gospels from the Pauline epistles. And and I, I, this is not unique. I mean, I've heard this before, and it more or less claims that the life and teaching of Jesus is irrelevant to Christianity. Which wow. is a radical position for someone claiming to be a Christian to take, yeah. right? And that Paul stands in somehow some sort of opposition to the teaching of Christ in the Gospels, and yet Paul is still somehow an authentic Christian theologian. I, I've heard this position before. I understand where it came from. I know what the internal logic of the position is. You know, logic in quotes here. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not going to go through that whole argument as to why they believe the way they believe, but I'll give you some alternate points. So first of all, the claim that Jesus didn't fulfill his mission because the Jews didn't convert, that runs flat contrary to the reason that Paul said he was called. Um, Paul did not say that he was called in order to convert Jews, but rather that he was called in order to convert Gentiles. And the consistent message of the New Testament about Paul was that Paul was the apostle to Gentiles, not to Jews. Mm, yeah. And and see, the the, the mindset of a first-century Jew— was that God had called Abraham and Moses and the people of Israel and that the, the ethnic descendants of Abraham, that the, the nation-state of Israel and that ethnic group, the Hebrew world, stood uniquely in a filial relationship to God and that the Gentile world outside that covenant was more or less kind of on their own. And, uh, and the young Paul actually had a pretty radical view. He basically said the Gentiles are cut off from God, have no hope of God or redemption at all, right? And there are, today, there are some ultra-Orthodox Jews, uh, pretty radical, they're not the majority, but there are some ultra-Orthodox Jews that take the position that Gentiles don't even have souls. They don't even have the capacity for a relationship with God. And that you can see how intimations of that in first-century Judaism. And in that worldview, uh, Christ appeared to St. Paul on the road to Damascus and called him to preach the Son of God among the Gentiles. And Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians that the the idea that the Gentiles could also be heirs together with Israel of the promises to Abraham was a radical idea that had never occurred to him, and in fact was the mystery kept hidden through all the ages only now to the apostles revealed in Christ, namely that the Gentiles were together with Israel heirs of, uh, of the kingdom and members of one body and sharers in the promise of Jesus. So what Paul says about his own ministry— directly contradicts what your what your brother says. It yeah. wasn't to convert Jews. It was, in fact, 
to convert <laughs> Gentiles. The only place Paul talks about the conversion of Jews is he talks about it in Romans 9 to 11. And what he says about it was that the way Paul saw Jews being converted mm-hmm. was by the Gentiles making them jealous. That after he, Paul, had managed to bring in, Paul and his successors, the full measure of Gentile converts, that seeing all these Gentiles come to believe in Abraham would prompt Jews to also accept the message of Jesus. So even to the extent that Paul talks about conversion of the Jews, it's through the medium, through the instrument of the conversion of Gentiles. Okay. Now, um, uh, the, the, this sort of radical rejection of the Old Testament, um, the, the, again, Paul's understanding of the Old Testament, and you can see this especially in the book of Galatians, is that the Old Testament is a pedagogue to lead us to Christ. That's his exact language in Galatians, that the Old Testament was a pedagogue to lead us to Christ. But it continues to be applicable in this sense, that woven throughout the Old Testament scriptures are types and allegories that point us to the truth about Christ without ever abrogating the underlying moral demands of the law. So things like circumcision and the dietary laws and things of that sort no longer have any purchase in the life of the Christian. They have a merely symbolic significance pointing to what would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus. But what's ultimately fulfilled in Christ is that the weightier matters of the law that Jesus himself talked about, love and justice and mercy and fidelity and chastity and these sorts of things, are given to us through the gift of the Spirit. And that, that comes to us in Christ. So Paul says explicitly, Romans 2.13, it's not hearing the law, it's obeying the law by which one will be declared righteous. Mm-hmm. One is justified by obeying the law. Paul says that explicitly in Romans chapter 2, verse 13. And that's an obedience that comes through faith as God gives his Spirit. So he pours the love of God into our hearts, that's Romans 5.5, 5, enabling us to keep the righteous requirements of the law. That's the, you know, the love and the fidelity and the mercy and the patience and kindness and those sorts of things that are perennial, that are, that are never abrogated by the coming of Christ, or in fact made possible by the coming of Christ. So circumcision, dietary laws, yes, all that's passed, right? But the, but the real substance of the Ten Commandments, the natural law, and the, and, the, and the command to love God and neighbor, Paul tells us, Romans 13, 8, that that's ultimately the fulfillment of all law. The love, if you have the love of God and neighbor in your heart, you've, you've got the Old Testament down. You don't, you don't need the, the, uh, the ceremonial law if you have love of God and neighbor, which, Paul tells us, is explicitly the point of the gospel. And if you don't live that way, he says in Galatians 5, if you don't have love and mercy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness in your heart, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's pretty stark language. That's yeah. why St. Peter says in 2 Peter 2 that if you begin that way of righteousness, the Christian way of life, and you turn back to fornication and adultery and hatred and factions and jealousy and disobedience to parents, if you turn back to that kind of thing, he says it's better that you, shouldn't, better that you never have become Christian to begin with wow. than to start the way of righteousness and then turn back from it. So there's really no conflict at all between Jesus and Paul in that both of them teach that sort of mere ceremonial religion concerned only with things like outward ritual and outward purity, are not what justifies. And so in that sense, the law doesn't justify. But both of them teach, you know, on the last day that God will, Jesus will say, you know, did you feed the hungry, clothe the naked, give drink to the thirsty? Uh, If you didn't live that way, then away from me, I never knew you. That the ethical heart of the gospel, the call to obedience and love and humility and faithfulness and gentleness, 
Uh, that's perennial from Genesis to Revelation. Beautiful. Marie, thanks so much uh, for your call today. Delighted that you're listening on the EWTN app, and you too can enjoy EWTN, carry it with you or wherever you go, when you download the free EWTN app. How's that for a segue? You can enjoy EWTN live TV and radio streams as well, audio and video on demand, EWTN news, program schedules, uh, prayers and devotionals, I've got it on my phone. I use it every day. Uh, Hopefully you can get it as well. It's absolutely free. Download it today by going to EWTNapps.com, EWTNapps.com. Let's go now to Mary in uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia, first-time caller there, watching us on EWTN television today. Hello, Mary. What's on your mind today? Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to ask Dr. Anderson, what do you think about the three days of darkness that that they predict is going to come? Yeah, thanks. So, uh, according to to fans of this uh, doctrine, the world will be covered in a supernatural darkness, and only light from beeswax candles will be able to physically illumine things, and all the enemies of the church will perish, and the secrets of hearts will be laid bare. Um, so, uh, there are no beeswax candles in my house. I've got some Duracell batteries, <laughs> you know, and some flashlights that I always lose. You know, but that is my only insurance against uh, any impending darkness is uh, artificial light like batteries and flashlights. Um, I think that the the hearts of all have already been laid bare. Uh, the consistent teaching of the gospel is that what is necessary to know about God is evident from the things that have been made, uh, so that humans are without excuse, and that the preaching of through the preaching of Christ, the ministry of Jesus. Uh, the conscience of the human race has been even more pricked, and so I, I don't. I, I think it's to to make the claim that we somehow need some future revelation beyond the revelation of Christ in order to convict the world of sin. I think runs flat contrary to the teaching of the New Testament that teaches that the world is already convicted of sin by the coming of Christ yeah. and by the natural law. Um, uh, you, you know, so uh, I I find this to be a superstitious belief that I think is harmful to piety and to, and, to, and to the cause of morality. Because like all apocalyptic prophecy, it puts the emphasis on the wrong things, and it turns the mind away from the kind of concerns I think a Catholic ought to have, which is for the common good, the good of my neighbor. Um, you know, if I'm, if I'm so wholly oriented that, that you know, the, the, the world that I live in right now is going to be radically destroyed in some apocalyptic cataclysm, then um, you know that I'm that I might not pay my mortgage, you know uh, I might not look for a just solution to say social or geopolitical ills, mm. right? I mean, and and we're called to do that. We're called to care for our neighbor and to provide for our children and to live lives of virtue. And I find this kind of apocalyptic fear mongering um, generally associated with fanaticism and um, and, uh, and 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 not like sound psychological outcomes. I, I don't think it's, it's helpful to the cause of piety or virtue, and, and, uh, and the bishops of the church don't promote this, and the pope doesn't promote this, the magisterium doesn't promote this. I mean, they, they tell us to be concerned for the common good and for social justice and for living lives of, you know, in, in, in quiet piety where we tend to our families and our neighbors and get on the business of being, being light in the world. The light of the world is not some beeswax candle. It should be the virtues of Christians. Be not afraid. Yep. There you go. Mary, thanks so much for your call. Here is Lisa now in Tulsa. Oh, Lisa just dropped. That phone call just dropped. But I do have a question here from Barry, and this is actually very timely. These days we hear a lot about blessings, and Barry wants to know, what is a blessing, and what does it actually do for someone? Um, yeah, thanks. So 
so um, the priestly blessing, priestly specifically, is at the root of all the sacramentals of the church. And uh, the Christ gave a, a jurisdiction to priests, to bishops, and to their collaborators, the priests. Uh-huh. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And so there is a there is a there's an authority behind the priestly blessing that is distinct from from a blessing uh, issued by a layperson, and and the priest can can make a gesture that, as it were, draws the object of the blessing within the intercessory power of the church. Right. So the church is always praying for souls, always mm. praying for salvation, mm-hmm. always praying for 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 uh, material security and peace in the world and things of that sort. And uh, and those those prayers have value. They have efficacy, and uh, a priest can, as it were, unite a person or an object to that intercessory project of the church. And so, if the priest say blesses an object, like blesses a rosary, uh-huh. think of it like this: it's as, it's as if the priest is saying, "God, may it be the case that upon the occasion of use of this object, mm-hmm. that the person who uses this blessed item would be remembered in a special way by you." And that on the occasion of using this item, be, be, be brought into a kind of participation in the collective intercession of the church. That's how all priestly blessings work. Okay. And it's how they are transmitted to persons and objects. Um, it's just a—yeah, it's a, it, it, there you go. There it is. And uh, thank you, Barry, for your email. Do appreciate that. We were able to get Lisa back on the phone. She is in Tulsa listening on the great Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Lisa, glad we reconnected with you. What's on your mind today? Um, I was wondering, um, <clears throat> whatever happened to Matthias the Apostle? Because whenever I hear theologians talk, I often hear them refer to the eleven apostles, and it seems like they ignore the fact that Judas was replaced. Um, yeah, yeah, I appreciate the question. So we we don't find uh, really anything about Matthias in the New Testament. Um, uh, we do find a little bit about him in uh, in the writings of Eusebius and some of the second century fathers, um, and uh, uh, memory suggests I think that he was reputed to have planted churches in Cappadocia. Um, so he went off mm. east, and and uh, you know there, there's some other stories about him that I don't honestly remember. Um, but you know Eusebius's ecclesiastical history is a source. Um, uh, for uh, stories about Matthias. Very good. Lisa, thanks so much for your call. Thanks for calling us back, by the way. Here's an email now from Mike. I know and understand that I cannot receive communion while knowingly in the state of mortal sin. Well, what about adoration? Can I adore in this state? Oh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. So, so first of all, if you, if you are conscious of grave sin, mm-hmm. yes, you could adore Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. But why aren't you in line at the confessional? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you should never willingly sit around in the state of grave sin. No. You know? And uh, if you're in the state of grave sin, you cannot merit. You cannot merit in the state of grave sin. Mm. Okay? Um, doesn't mean that God never hears your prayers. Uh, but, uh, I mean, in particular, the prayer for the grace of repentance is one God is likely to hear when you're in the state of grave sin. God, give me the grace to repent of my sins and amend my life. Yes. You, you, can, you can get that. You can knock that one out. But, like, really, like, I think you have your priorities wrong. Yeah. You know, if, you're in the, if you know you're in the state of grave sin, that means that your heart is in enmity with God. Okay. Right? And, and so what, what, what sense does it make— to say, well, I'm going to go get close to Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament while 
while dispositionally in my will, I am rejecting him. Yeah. Like, that's a kind of performative contradiction. I mean, so so the context in which I could see a person being in Eucharistic adoration in the state of grave sin would be like, you know, let's say you go to the church and you want to go to confession at 3 o'clock. They've got confessions posted. You get there half an hour early. The Blessed Sacrament is exposed, and you're like, okay, you know, like, I know I want to amend my life, so I'm going to sit here in front of the Blessed Sacrament until the priests get here. And then I'm, but then the really important thing is get to confession. Okay. If you're in grave sin, no better place for you to be than confession. It's even better for you than Eucharistic adoration. Priorities. Very good. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for your email. We'll close with this one. Uh, It's an email from Paul in Chicago. I'm a cradle Catholic and something of an apologist thanks to this show and others. I've only just recently heard of the doctrine of the fewness of the saved. Is this really a true doctrine of the Church? Please illuminate. Ad maiorum de gloriam, Paul from Chicago. All right, so let's distinguish a doctrine from a dogma. Okay. Right. A dogma is a doctrine that has been solemnly proclaimed by the magisterium as something coming to us from divine revelation, which all Catholics are bound in conscience to believe on, uh, you know, on pain of heresy. Okay. okay. There are a lot of doctrines that are not elevated to the level of a dogma. Okay. That is th- things that Catholics have taught, right, that are not dogma in that sense. So the doctrine that only a few people are saved, like, like you know, in percentages terms. Uh-huh. Um, uh, is not a dogma of the faith, and and uh, uh, there are different theological opinions on the proportion of the saved to the damned. Okay, now uh, it is the will of God that all people be saved. That's explicit teaching of Scripture. Um, the uh, uh, the Fatima prayer, you know, um, have, 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 Tom, help me out here. Lead all souls to heaven, especially especially those most in need of thy mercy. All right. It makes no sense to ask God to lead all souls to heaven if we are dogmatically certain that he won't. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, We pray that all souls be saved. And and we do that with a disposition that that's a reasonable thing to ask. Mm -hmm. Right? These kinds of considerations are why theologians differ in understanding this question of the ratio of the saved to the damned. Okay. All right, and we uh, will go out on that. Really appreciate uh, all of our calls today, all the emails and everything else. Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday on EWTN Radio, our live broadcast at 2 p.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday on the radio side of EWTN. You can check out the podcast, as we mentioned earlier, by going to EWTN.com slash radio once you're on the radio homepage look for the words podcast central click on that you are good to go on behalf of our fantastic team today charles matt and rich i'm tom price along with dr david anders hey thanks for joining us we'll see you next time right here on ewtn's call to communion with dr david anders have a great day and god bless